listening to the Trinity Church Chester Sermon Podcast. Trinity Church Chester is a new church seeking to reach the city with the good news of Jesus Christ. And at the heart of our ministry is our Sunday worship service, in which we hear a sermon preached from a particular part of the Bible. We're glad you're listening. We'd love to see you in person at the Welsh Presbyterian Church Building on St. John Street in the city centre. We meet there every Sunday at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and you can find more details on our website trinitychester.church Come and join us as we seek to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Our scripture reading is from 1 Samuel in the Old Testament, chapter 16, reading the first 23 verses. 1 Samuel, chapter 16. Let's hear God's word. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought... Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants, who are before you, to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it, and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valour, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence. And the Lord is with him. 
Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David, his son, to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly and he became his armour bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favour in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, uh, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. Amen. This is God's word. Uh, Well, throughout the calendar year here at Trinity, um, we've been working our way through the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. We just read from, we've been working through it in three separate parts. Three separate series of sermons, and today we're beginning the final of those three series, from 1 Samuel 16 through to the end of the book. Uh, 1 and 2 Samuel are books of the Old Testament uh, that document a particular part of the history of God's people during the time of the Old Testament. And they're significant because they cover the period of history in which the nation of Israel, God's Old Testament people as they were, received for the first time a king and became a nation governed as a monarchy. For decades, centuries, leading up to the point of the first king, life for God's people had been particularly miserable. They had external problems in the form of the Philistines and neighbouring people who uh, were constantly attacking them. They had internal problems too in the form of ungodly and selfish leaders. The beginning of 1 Samuel, uh, we're told that the priests, those who were responsible for leading God's people to serve and worship him rightly were instead serving themselves in corrupt and immoral ways, all of which only contributed to the misery of God's people. God, on his part, had raised up Samuel, a man to whom God spoke and a man through whom God began to restrain and purify the leadership of his people. But as Samuel grew older, the people came to him and demanded that he install a king to reign over them. Now, The problem with that was not the desire for a king in itself. God had in fact made provision in Israel's law during the time of Moses for a king to be installed at some point in the future. The problem with the demand was that here were God's people demanding a king on their terms. A king at their appointed time, not God's. A king of their choosing rather than God's choosing. Samuel, in response, he'd outlined for the people the seriousness of their demand. He made it clear that in choosing a king on their terms, they were at the same time, in a very real sense, rejecting God as their king. But they persisted, and God told Samuel to grant them their demand and install as Israel's first king, King Saul. Saul's reign had started well. As he'd listened to Samuel, he'd obeyed God's words. But it quickly became just another contributing factor to the misery of God's people as he stopped listening to Samuel and he rejected God's word. And so eventually God declared in 1 Samuel 15 that Saul would be removed from office and the throne would be given to another. The key difference this time, however, was that this king would be the king whom God chooses. And our passage for today is all about this issue. 1 Samuel 16 is all about the significance of God's choice. So three headings for you this afternoon. The importance of God's choice, the man of God's choice, and the result of God's choice. And we'll spend a little bit more time on the first one. First of all, the importance of God's choice. 
We see it hinted that God's choice is the all-important subject here at the very, at the very beginning of the passage, in the very first verse. In verse 1, God told Samuel to go to Jesse the Bethlehemite because, he says, I have provided for myself a king among Jesse's sons. What initiates everything that follows in our passage is the fact that God has chosen, God has provided for himself a king to govern his people. And what follows is that Samuel makes his way to Bethlehem and he takes an animal along with him to sacrifice so as to not unnecessarily arouse the current king's suspicion as to why Samuel was on his way to Bethlehem. Simply going to sacrifice to the Lord there, it would have seemed. Uh, And Saul wasn't the only one who might have found Samuel's visit alarming because in verse 4 we're told that the elders of Bethlehem, upon meeting Samuel, were trembling. Perhaps they were concerned about how their increasingly unhinged king would have been concerned. Uh, But Samuel announced to them in verse 5 that he came in peace and he went with Jesse and Jesse's sons to offer the sacrifice. At some point, since arriving... Uh, Samuel had made known to Jesse the ultimate reason behind his visit, that the Lord had sent him to anoint one of Jesse's sons as Israel's king. And so at this sacrificial ceremony, Jesse begins to bring his sons over to Samuel one by one, with both Samuel and Jesse wondering which one of these sons was the Lord's chosen king. Eliab is brought, then Abinadab, then Shammah, then the rest of Jesse's sons who are gathered for the sacrifice. And after each one was brought... The Lord said to Samuel, the Lord has not chosen this one. So Samuel says to Jesse in verse 11, are all of your sons here? To which Jesse replies and says, the smallest of his sons is out in the fields looking after the sheep. Samuel has Jesse send for him. And when he arrives, the Lord says to Samuel, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Samuel anoints him, at which point we're told that the spirit of the Lord rushed upon this son of Jesse's. And in verse 13, for the first time in the passage, we're told that this son's name was David. It is quite clear then that what is of importance in this passage is that this is a king whom God has chosen. As well as this entire event having been initiated by God's announcement of his choice in verse 1, three times in verse 8, 9 and 10, we're then told of Jesse's other sons that the Lord has not chosen this one. Both Samuel and Jesse were in the dark on the matter too until David arrives and the Lord reveals his choice to him, uh, to them then. Uh, Clearly the fact that this king is of God's choosing is important. And so the question becomes why? Why is the fact that this is God's choice so important? And to discover the answer we simply have to consider what had happened in the history of God's people when God's people had insisted on their choice rather than God's. Because whenever God's people had insisted on their own choosing, they had only managed to bring upon themselves more and more misery. This is one of the themes that we've seen develop in 1 Samuel. Back in chapter 4, when the people of Israel were under attack from the Philistines, the people decided, rather than inquiring of God as to what they should do, to take the Ark of the Covenant, one of Israel's sacred objects, down into the battle that they were on the brink of losing in the hope that it would be some form of lucky charm for them. It wasn't. They lost the battle. And the Ark of the Covenant, the very emblem of God's presence with his people, was taken into enemy territory. Israel was humiliated. God's people made a choice and only ended in more misery. 
The same is true when it came to Saul's appointment as king. Saul was, as it is repeatedly emphasised in 1 Samuel, the people's chosen king. In 1 Samuel 8, Samuel refers to him as your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. And he says the same thing in 1 Samuel 12, verse 13. Saul was not God's choice, but the people's choice. And from the outside, it might have appeared a good choice and a shrewd appointment. Saul was the kind of man who you noticed when he walked into the room. Uh, he, he was a significant figure with plenty of charisma. He was clearly capable to on a, on a, on a um, military level, on a warfare level. His appointment would have appeared to make sense in so many ways. But just as Samuel had warned would happen if God's people insisted on their choice, Saul's reign over them was ultimately one of disaster, heaping more and more misery upon God's people. Uh, the importance of God's choice clearly seen when we recognise our inability to choose wisely for ourselves. And what's surprising in 1 Samuel 16 in our passage is that even Samuel can't be trusted with the choice. In verse 6, as Eliab stands before Samuel, Samuel thinks to himself, surely this this is the Lord's anointed one. And we're told in verse 7 why it was that Samuel assumed that about Eliab when the Lord says to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Samuel, looking on the outward appearance of Eliab, apparently sees a man who is tall and good looking and he thinks to himself, this man is royal caliber. But in doing so, What we see is that Samuel is surprisingly ready to anoint another Saul figure as king. Because the description of Eliab in 1 Samuel 16 matches the description of Saul back in 1 Samuel 9. What we were told about Saul in 1 Samuel 9 is that he was a handsome young man. So much so that there was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he And from his shoulders upwards, he was taller than any of the people. Here is Eliab, and he's tall, and he's handsome, and he gets Samuel's vote. Even though Samuel, more than anybody else, had felt the pain of the disaster that was Israel's first tall, handsome king. Now, the point here is not that physical appearance either qualifies or disqualifies a person in God's sight. And we know that because David is also described as handsome later on in chapter 16, and he is the one God chooses. The point, rather, is that even Samuel, who at this point in Israel's history is head and shoulders above almost all of the people in terms of godliness and integrity and wisdom, even Samuel couldn't be trusted to choose wisely. Even the best among God's people, left to himself, was not able to make a choice that would be for the good of God's people. Had the choice been left to Samuel, the implication is that yet more misery would have been waiting around the corner. The importance of God's choice is seen when we recognise our inability to make choices for our own good And the reason that God is able to make choices and map circumstances out that will ultimately be for the good of his people, it's explained by God himself in verse 7. 
Uh, When he explains to Samuel why it is that Samuel should not jump to conclusions based on outward appearances, God says at the end of verse 7, For the Lord sees, not as man sees, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now, what does that mean? Well, uh, first of all, we need to be clear about what it doesn't mean. In explaining that he has rejected Eliab because he looks on the heart, God looks on the heart, God is not implying that he has observed something in Eliab that disqualifies him from God's selection. Nor is he implying that he has observed something in Eliab's younger brother, David, in his heart, uh, something that might not be immediately obvious to Samuel and Jesse, but something nonetheless that means God is willing to choose David as king. Verse 7 is not teaching us that there was a certain quality within David himself that made him worthy of God's choosing. It cannot be teaching us that because in this whole selection process, David is entirely passive. He isn't even named until after he has been anointed king. David's character is not what is being emphasised here when God teaches us that he looks on the heart. Rather, What God is teaching us in verse 7 is that whilst our perception of things is limited to outward appearances, to how things appear to us, God is not limited in this way. His perception of things, of all things, is perfect. He looks upon the heart in the sense that he is able to see to the heart of matters. In fact, there's a good argument to be made that when God says that he looks upon the heart, what he is referring to is the idea that whilst we are only able to see with our eyes, God sees with his heart. There's good reason to believe that the sense of the phrase, the Lord looks upon the heart, is not so much a reference to God seeing and assessing our hearts, but it's a reference to God seeing the situation according to his heart. That is to say, God is emphasising that he chooses according to his intentions, according to the intentions of his heart. There are several reasons why this seems to be the meaning of the verse, but one of them is found in what David says to God later on in his life, after he'd been crowned king and his kingdom had been established. David says to God in 2 Samuel 7 verse 21, Because of your promise and according to your own heart, You have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. David recognised something key. David had been referred to by Samuel as a man after God's own heart. If you're familiar at all with 1 and 2 Samuel, you'll, you'll know that about David. He was a man after God's own heart. But what David recognised is that that statement is not a statement about David, but about God. For David to be a man after God's own heart was to be a man of God's own choosing, just as we see in 1 Samuel 16. He was chosen not because of the kind of man he was, but according to the intention of God's heart. One commentator on 1 Samuel named John Woodhouse puts it like this. He says, a man after God's own heart is talking about the place the man has in God's heart rather than the place God has in the man's heart. 
Now, these gracious statements in 1 Samuel, including 1 Samuel 16 verse 7, are about God's gracious and sovereign purposes rather than some quality in a man. Now, if I've lost you at all there, and all of that was, was simply to highlight that when God chooses David to be king in 1 Samuel 16, he does not choose him because he is a more upright man or because he is a man for the times or for any quality that David might have possessed. But God chooses him simply because he is determined in his heart that David, through David, God will begin to end the misery that his people were suffering and do them good. That is the heart of God's intention. The heart upon which God looks as he chooses David. The importance of God's choice is that he is able to see beyond outward appearances and able to see to it that the heart of his plan is carried out. Before we move on, we should pause very briefly to acknowledge just the relevance this has for us. Uh, It's relevant when it comes to understanding what is spelled out in the New Testament, that a Christian is only a Christian because God has chosen that person to be a Christian. What the Apostle Paul refers to as election. Just as the reason David was elected king had nothing to do with any quality he possessed, the reason why a person is elected to be a Christian has nothing to do with any quality we might possess. God's choice when it came to David was simply a gracious and sovereign choice. His choice when it comes to us is also simply a gracious and sovereign choice. Now that is good news for us on several levels. The fact that God chooses us to belong to him simply as a gracious and sovereign choice means that those who belong to him belong to him not by virtue of a decision we make but by virtue of a decision he makes. If it rested on our decision, we would be doomed to misery, just like the people of Israel at the beginning of 1 Samuel, because we, just like the people of Israel in 1 Samuel, would never make the wise decision. We would never choose for our good. We would never choose God. 1 Samuel 16 teaches us about the importance of God's gracious, sovereign choice when it comes to our election to be God's people. It also teaches us one simple lesson, which, if we do not learn, will mean that we will never come to understand the teaching of the Bible and the Christian faith itself. And and the lesson is this. God is the one who chooses how it is that your misery will be relieved. In 1 Samuel 16, God chooses for himself a king and we'll see over the coming weeks that his intention is that through this king he will bring the suffering of his people to an end he'll bless them god is the one who sets the agenda when it comes to redeeming and renewing and blessing us he chooses his king and through this king he blesses his people we don't choose the king we don't choose how it is that we can be redeemed and renewed and blessed We are simply called to acknowledge God's chosen king and in submitting our lives to him we find the redemption, renewal and the blessing we long for. For Israel in 1 Samuel 16 that meant receiving King David as their king. But for us 
It means receiving as king the one whom David pointed forward to. The one whom would be in the mould of David and in the family line of David, but whose reign as king would far outweigh David's in terms of significance. And so secondly, and these second and third points are going to be really quite brief, we see in 1 Samuel 16... Not only the importance of God's choice, but also the man of God's choice. There are several bits of information we're given in this chapter about David, the man God chooses as king. In verse 12, we're told about his appearance. He was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. In verse 18, one of the young men in King Saul's administration knew David and referred to him as a man who is skillful in playing music. A man of valour, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him, he told Saul. Now, all of that information is somewhat incidental and not hugely significant, except for the final description Saul's servant uses to describe David. The Lord is with him. The servant was right to describe David in that way, and he was right to do so because of what we're told happened after Samuel anointed David. We're told in verse 13, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. It's a somewhat mysterious reference. Now, what did it look like for the spirit of the Lord to rush upon David, we might wonder? But it's not, a, it's not a reference that appears for the first time in the Bible here in 1 Samuel 16. In the book of Judges, uh, the Old Testament book that documents Israel's history in the era prior to Samuel, uh, we're told several times in Judges 14 and 15 that the Spirit of the Lord had rushed then upon Samson. Uh, Samson was a kind of leader of God's people before the time of the monarchy who at various points, had brought relief to God's people by defeating the Philistines. And we're told that the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. Uh, When we read, then, that the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David, we're to understand it as an indicator that God was about to bring relief to his people through the Spirit-anointed King David. God would relieve his people of their misery through him. We even saw something similar in some measure with King Saul. In 1 Samuel 10, verse 6, we read that the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And the result of that was that Saul prophesied and raised up an army to go and deliver God's people from the Philistines once again. Saul received the Spirit of the Lord, and God's people were granted relief. But this time with David, there's something more permanent about the relief God brings. In 1 Samuel 16, verse 13, we're told that the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. That final clause isn't used to describe Samson or Saul receiving the Spirit, and it teaches us that David received the Spirit of the Lord in a more permanent, longer-lasting fashion than Samson and others who had lived before him. And the relief that David's reign as king would bring, the way in which God's people would be blessed through him, would be far greater than the relief and blessing they had known under previous leaders. And yet, in all of this, David is, in a very real sense, merely a warm-up act 
for the ultimate man of God's choice, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when we get to the New Testament, Matthew's Gospel includes a genealogy documenting Jesus' family history, a family history that's traced back through King David. And the point of it is that we recognise there that Jesus is of royal descent. In the same New Testament Gospel, in Matthew chapter 3, we also read of Jesus receiving the Holy Spirit, just as David did. Only with Jesus, there's an even greater sense of permanence. Matthew describes the Holy Spirit coming to Jesus as descending on him like a dove and coming to rest on him. Coming to rest on him. There's a richness to the symbolism in that scene, if you can picture it. The dove is associated with God bringing peace and new life in the time of Noah after the flood. It's an image of relief from misery. And the fact that the dove comes to rest on Jesus teaches us that ultimately, here is the man of God's choice. Here is the one who will relieve not only the misery of God's Old Testament people, but the misery of all from all nations who come to him and receive him as their king. Here is the one anointed as king and the one who receives the spirit for the role of delivering God's people and who, because he has conquered death by rising from the dead, remains in that office, carrying out that role forever. Friends, you and I don't get to choose how our misery is relieved. God does. And he has chosen the Lord Jesus Christ and has given him the Holy Spirit for this very purpose. So that he might redeem, renew and bless us. Had the choice been left to us, we never would have chosen such a capable saviour. But God, in his grace, has chosen him for us and has elected him to this role so that all who come to him will not experience misery forever, but will be granted relief through him. In fact, this is what we see hinted at in our passage when we see, thirdly and finally, um, the result of God's choice. Uh, Verse 14 is a tragic verse. It says, Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. David had received the spirit, but Saul was now without the spirit. If you're familiar with the New Testament teaching on how we receive the Holy Spirit as Christians, uh, then you need to be careful not to read into this verse too much of your own perspective. Now, what is being described here is a person in a particular role being given the Spirit in order to carry out that role. And now Saul is without that Spirit. And in its place we're told that a harmful Spirit from the Lord tormented him. We're not given any more information than that as to what it entails. But whatever it entails, the tragedy of the situation is clear. Saul, who had known the privilege of having the Spirit of the Lord, was now without the Spirit, and he suffered for it. And so his servants, 
seeing his misery, suggests that a skilled musician be sent for and Saul approves and somehow David is known to one of the servants as a man fit for the role and so Jesse has sent a royal decree to send his son David to the palace and here comes David the king elect and he enters the king's administration. Saul became very fond of David, gave him certain responsibilities and then we read in verse 23, whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. When you take a step back and look at the big picture there, what you see is this. David, knowing that he has been chosen to be king, relieves the misery of the current king who was responsible for his own misery as well as the misery he'd inflicted on others. And he relieves his misery in the most gentle of ways, playing soothing music on his harp. It wasn't a common thing in the ancient world for a soon-to-be king to be so gentle towards the person who ultimately was his enemy. In fact, we'll see that very thing play out in 2 Samuel when David's sons seek to kill David and take the throne by force. And yet here is David, soon to be king, and he gently supports and assists his enemy and in some way relieves his misery. In this way, David points forward to the ultimate king who would come through his family line. And just think of how gently Jesus made his way to his throne. He, like David, knew that the throne was his. He knew that he is the royal son of God. And yet he was in no hurry to get there. And along the way, what we see him doing is gently relieving the misery of those he came into contact with. Healing sick people, restoring broken people desiring to deliver those around him from their various distresses. And gently and calmly, the rightful king even allowed himself to be lifted up on a cross. He even silently endured a mock crown of thorns being placed on his head. And he even graciously prayed for his enemies. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. And there on the cross, he accomplished the work he came to do as God's chosen king. By dying for our sin, he removed from us the cause of all our misery, ensuring that all who bow the knee to him in repentance and faith know what it is to now be assured that our suffering and misery will not last forever. The Lord Jesus Christ is God's man of choice. He is the one through whom he will redeem, restore and bless his people. There is no other chosen king. There is no other road to redemption. And so, whilst it might sound a little twee, it is nonetheless perhaps the most important question you could ever be asked. Is this king your king? 
Let's close in prayer. Thank you for listening to the Trinity Church Chester Sermon Podcast. We hope that this message is a blessing to you. If you'd like to know more about the Christian faith and what it means to live as a Christian, please do get in touch. You can email hello at trinitychester.church or head to the Connect page on our website, trinitychester.church forward slash connect. We'd love to hear from you soon.